Well, this morning we're going to look at the uh, two verses, 12, actually 3 through 14. And, uh, you know, as I was preparing this this last week, I was thinking that there are two big questions that we, we hear asked quite, quite often and uh, for which most people don't have an answer for. Number one is, why must we die? There's even a more basic question than that. Why do we have to die? You know, why is there death in the first place, and why must we die? But before that is, is the question of evil, and how evil came into the world, and how sin came into the world. And what is the origin of sin? What is the origin of, of wickedness and evil in the world? You know, the atheist has their problem in, in trying to answer that question. The atheist requires them to, first of all, agree that there's something called sin. <laughs> they have to agree, first of all, that there's a moral code and that there's a moral code that, that the people are breaking and therefore doing bad things. And so that, that's difficult for many atheists. It was C.S. Lewis who wrote, man does not have a, an idea of a, crook, of a crooked line unless he knows what a straight line is. And so the, that, that, that's really the dilemma for the, for the atheist. You have to first know that there is a crooked, to know the, the crooked line, you must know that there is a straight line. And of course, when you, you have a belief system, a worldview that holds that, uh, that everything is kind of in chaos and it, it, it all began with a, with a big bang by accident and no one knows where it's going and there's molecules bouncing around in your skull and all of a sudden, how are you going to come with a moral code out of chaos? That's their dilemma. The theist has their dilemma. The theist, uh, like say Mary, Mary Baker Eddy of the Christian Scientist, where did evil come from? Where did sin come from? Well, for them it's very easy. There is no sin and there is no evil in the world. In fact, what it is is an illusion. And if you see things that you think are sinful or wrong, you're, you're having an illusion. Uh, she writes, God is real, but evil is not real. It's an illusion and has no real basis in reality. And even go on being consistent, neither does death. People don't really die. That's an illusion as well. So it can even be a difficult question for us as Christians. If you ask yourself, where does evil come from? Where, what's the origin of sin? How does sin enter into the world? I mean, here, here's our dilemma. We believe in a holy God, right? We believe in a God who's pure, who, who, who knows no, no sin. And then He created the heavens and the earth, and He made man and woman. And so how does a, a good God, a holy God, create man, and now we have wickedness and evil and sin, everything contrary to His nature? And what about death? Our God's a, an eternal God, a God of life. Why would there be death under his headship? Why would there be suffering? Well, these are some of the essential questions that I think many people are asking. It's really the answer we're going to find in today's two, three verses that we're going to look at in Romans chapter 5. And, and let me tell you why I believe this is so important for us to really understand 14, 15, and uh, 12, 13, and 14. And that is this. Unless we understand the sinfulness of sin from every possible perspective we can understand it. We will never appreciate or understand 
or flee to the remedy that God's given us for that sin. So we come to verse 12. Paul's going to introduce a new section here. We're going into a new thought. And notice he begins with the word what? Therefore. Remember, we've said this many times going through Romans. When we see a therefore, what do we do? We stop, and what do we do? Ask a question. What's the question? What's the therefore? You know, what's it there for? And because that will help give us meaning and understanding of the passage we, we, we're about to read. Uh, if you remember, we said therefore is one of those bridging words. It's like a, a bridge that goes between a previous thought and the thought that, uh, that Paul is making in the passage that he's writing. And so it's important for us to be able to link back and see how big that bridge is, how far it goes back into what Paul just wrote so that we can properly and contextually understand what he means here starting in verse 12. Now, in this case, you say, Don, what, what, what does it link back to? This is a bridge, I believe, that goes all the way back to the first chapter, the opening verses of Romans. And I believe it's a bridge that connects that all the way up to and through Romans chapter 5, verse 11. In other words, I believe this bridge connects everything Paul's already written in Romans up to this point in time. And you'll see why in just a second. Remember how Romans opened up? Remember the first three chapters of Romans? Remember where we spent a lot of time there looking at what? The condemnation of mankind, the sinfulness of man. And, and it, those were dark times as we went every week deep in, 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 into sin, into condemnation and wrath. And I said, well, just hold on. Hold on. We're going to get to chapter 3, around 21, and, and, and the light's going to start shining, and we're going to begin to see the brightness of the gospel. That's what Paul purposed to write here was the gospel, and we're going to begin to see the doctrine of justification by faith. And now we've been looking at that starting at cha- the end of chapter 3, all the way through 5 up to verse 11. So we have two things that we've been looking at. The condemnation of man and the righteousness we now have imputed to us through the Lord Jesus Christ through faith and trusting in Him and Him alone. And now in light of that, therefore, we come to verse 12. Therefore, What about sin? What about righteousness? Where do these things come from? Where does the wrath of God come from? Where does death come from? And so he's taking us off and, and helping us see some more depth in, into those truths. Doesn't our experience prove that there is, in fact, wickedness in the world? Is that your experience? I mean, is it your experience? I mean, do you see sin around you? Do you see sin in you? Um, it's everywhere. It was the last Friday was uh, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, commemorating 49 years since that church or since that uh, decision came down, marked by 63 million babies that have been killed in in those years. 63 million deaths of babies, showing the murderous heart of a nation. We 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 see wickedness all around us. You look at your favorite news feed on, on the, online, and you'll find stories filled with murder, embezzlement, drunkenness, theft, drugs, rape, kidnapping. 
I mean, you see cities on fire. You see all kinds of things representing the sinful heart of man. And so most of us would go, yeah, that, 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 that's right. Man can be pretty bad. And then all you have to do is look into your own family. Go off the news feed into your own home. And you look at your parenting. And as parents, you, you, you look at your, your, your children. And as you do, you begin to realize, boy, how much time as a parent do I spend not only teaching my children and praying for my children, but restraining, restraining the evil that I see in my children's hearts. I mean, that's, that, 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 that's, that's the hard part of parenting, especially as they get older, and then that begins to manifest, manifest itself more and more. Sibling rival, rivalry, dishonoring of mom and dad. Uh, in fact, if you want to look closer, just look at your own heart. Yeah, you'll find it out there. Yeah, you'll find it in the news feed. Yes, you'll find it in the family. But just look in your own heart for evidence that, that there is sin out there and that there is wickedness. Just try and stop it sometimes and see how powerful it is in your life. You know, what one of us have not battled with, with, with some degree of fornication in our own hearts, sexual uncleanness in our lives, uh, pornography on the screen, lying that we've done for our own advantage, drugs and alcohol to an abusive state, anger and pride, and all the things that go into breaking relationships. I mean, if we want to see sin on display and realize that, yeah, it is real, look, let's look in our own hearts. In your heart, in my heart, we'll begin to see it quite graphically on display. And you'll especially see that, you know, all your efforts to try and restrain it are too weak. You can't stop it by yourself. You know, every day our lives affirm the biblical condemnation that comes with sin, that is, that all will die. You sin, you die. That's the, that's the precepts of Scripture. I know at least one in our church family uh, this last week went to a memorial service for a dear loved one, mourning and grieving with family members because a young lady passed away and went off into eternity, believing her to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Death is real. We see it all around us. Most of you have friends, loved ones. Maybe you had close friends that died because of COVID just in the last year or two. Ordinary people die. Famous people die. Children die. Old people die. Everyone's going to die, the Bible says. You're going to die one day. None of us will escape death. I was never a big meatloaf fan, but I see that he passed away this last week as well. And it's an absolute promise to God. You can mark that one. One day you'll die. The day you'll die has been appointed before the foundation of the world. God's already picked it, and that'll be the day that you leave this life. But at the end of chapter 3, remember we saw the good news began to, in, when we're back in chapter 3, going back to the bridge again, one of those but God verses where, but God's come in and changed things. Yes, there is sin in the world, but there is what we have learned as the doctrine of justification by faith in which Christ was sent into this world, the Son of the living God, to be a substitute, a sin-bearer on behalf of everyone that the Father gave Him to save. And on that cross, when He died, 
And he shed his blood. He purchased for every one of his people that not only the forgiveness of sins, but that all that would come to faith and trust in him, that he would bestow upon them and clothe them in his righteousness. He would give them everything they needed to overcome the ravages of sin and the condemnation that goes with it. Jesus is the gift of God to free us from the bondage of sin. So, these are the big questions we're looking at. The origin of sin, the origin of evil. Why death? Where did it come from? So now Paul's going to bring a a bridge from condemnation, remember the first part, the first three chapters of Romans, to verse 12, 13, and 14. So what Paul's doing, he's stopping, and he's answering the big question. Okay, we talked about condemnation. We talked about sin. Now I I need to talk about where did it come from? We we, we covered it pretty clearly, but where did it come from? And he feels that before we can go any further, we have to have an answer to that question. Where does evil come from? Why do people die? And what he's going to do here in these three verses, he's going to take his, his brush out, and he's going to, a big, big brush, this is like a big, he's going to a big brush stroke of redemptive history all the way from Genesis through, through Revelation. And he's going to paint this brush stroke by bringing out a little bit of a smaller brush, and on that picture of redemptive history, he's going to do, paint two portraits. One's a portrait of Adam, and the other is a portrait of Jesus Christ. And he said, you want to understand redemptive history, you have to understand two men and what they represent and our relationship to those two men, Adam and Christ. Today we're going to look at Adam, the first picture, the first, first portrait And uh, Lord willing, next week we'll look at Jesus Christ, uh, the second portrait that he's going to draw from verses uh, 15 to 21. In 12 to 14, we see Adam reigned. He had a reign of death. In 15 and 22, we see Jesus had a reign. He reigns in life. And now the big question is, what is the origin of evil? Well, let me just answer it by giving you two headings we're going to look at. What's the origin of sin? Where did it come from? Number one, we're going to see it comes from an imputation of Adam's guilt. And number two, we're going to see it comes from an inheritance of Adam's corruption. Those are the two sources of evil in the world and in each one of our lives individually. Where did evil come from? Where did sin begin? Well, it was the imputation of Adam's guilt and the inheritance of Adam's corruption. Now, we've been throwing this word imputation around a lot, so hopefully most of you are familiar with what imputation means, right? We've been talking about it. We're talking about it on Wednesday night. We've been talking about it all the way through, through uh, justification by faith. We can't understand salvation if we don't understand the word imputation. We, we really can't understand how, how depraved we are as sinners unless we understand imputation. And uh, it's, it's a legal fiction. I know it's, uh, it, it, it's guilt imputed to someone who didn't do the act themselves. But a, a legal fiction that's made so that, 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 well, actually, it's an accounting term, isn't it? Uh, right? Are you still counting season, right? You're into it. The, uh, it's an accounting term, you know, uh, 
imputing something, taking it from one ledger and putting it to the other and, and making the two balance out. That's one way you can impute. Here we're going to look at the imputation of Adam's guilt in our lives. That's the origin of sin. By the way, this might seem to you like a kind of a simple passage, these three verses. But I talked to my son Paul earlier in the week, last week, and I said, man, I'm struggling. This is not as easy as I thought it was. I didn't realize there was as much in these three verses to make everything work its way out in an understandable way, I thought I knew this verse well. And so I started getting deep, and then I realized, well, i got a little bowl of spaghetti here, and I'm trying to, trying to unwind it and pull it apart and figure out what exactly is, is Paul trying to say here. And uh, so let me just tell you what I've... 12 verses 12, 13, and 14. Okay, look at your Bible, and you might, as you look at your Bible, this is what I understand Paul to be saying by way of paraphrase. First of all, he's going to tell us sin entered to the whole world by one man. That's that's the origin. Sin entered into the whole world, where? By one man. We're going to see that. Secondly, death entered the world through sin. So death is here, we believe that, and it entered the world through sin. And then death spread to all mankind. Why? Because all of mankind have sinned. And he's going to verify that through history in verses 13 through 14. That's his argument. Sin entered the world by one man. Death entered the world through sin. And then death spread to all of mankind because all have sinned. So for there to be death, there has to be sin. Where did sin come from? Through one man. It entered the whole world. So that's where we're going to go this morning. Uh, so where does it come from? Why is it universal? Didn't God make man in his own image? Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't man made holy and good in the garden? Didn't God declare Adam and Eve to be very good of all of his creation? So where did it all go south? Where, where, where did it all of a sudden uh, become sin? And here we see in verse 12, the first heading is the imputation of guilt of Adam's sin. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, okay, you got the imagery, sin coming into the world through one man. Who's the one man? Look at verse 14. There you see his name. It's Adam. Therefore, through Adam, sin came into the whole world. And that's how it got here. But how did it get from the garden to everybody? You know, know, the Omicron came, they they said, from South Africa. Had to begin with one man. Look how quickly it spread to the whole world. That's that's the imagery we have here. How did that happen? Adam literally means man or ground. He was formed from the dust of the earth. Sin came into the world through Adam. How? Well, but by the way, just let me just say, first of all, do you realize that, that Paul is stating here that he believes Adam is a historical figure? I mean, he's building his whole argument on Adam. I mean, if Adam is just a mythical character that came out of Mesopotamia or something, I mean, 
all of a sudden, I mean, this whole argument falls apart. He, he is a living person. We are, we are vitally joined to Him. We're going to see how. And, and so he believes he, Him to be a historical person, the first man. We know that God didn't create sin, did He? Adam was holy. Where did it come from? He was made holy without sin. He was very good. Well, we're going to see that God created Adam to be more than the first parent of, of all of us. Although that was his purpose as well. Our lineage goes all the way back, back to, to Adam, every one of us. But he created Adam to be what we might call the representative head of a human race. He created Adam to be what we might call a covenantal head of a covenant of the whole human race. And the covenant there being the covenant of works that was in the garden. Obey and you'll live. Disobey, you'll die. A lot of commentators call him the, the federal head. The federal headship of Adam. He was a man that God appointed to be the federal head over the whole human race. And, and, and what that means is this, that he was given a role to play as a federal head where whatever he did would, would impact every single one of us. There'd be that representative, he'd be our representative head. A.W. Pink writes, there's been but two federal heads, Adam and Christ, with each of whom God entered into a covenant. Each of them acted on behalf of others and legally represented a definite people, so much so that all whom they represented were regarded by God as being in them, being in Adam, represented the whole human race. Christ represented all those whom the Father had and His eternal counsel had given to Him. And so what, 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 what Pink is telling us there is that there really are two federal heads. We're going to, we're going to look at the, Christ next week. We'll look at Adam this week. And by God's design, all of us were, spiritually speaking, in, in Adam. Or we were standing in the same room in the garden or out in the same field that he was. All mankind, every one of us, he was out in front of us making decisions that would affect everyone behind him, including you and me. He was our federal head. He was our representative. What he did applies to you and to me. It would be like, for example, a federal headship of our senators from Wyoming. I mean, think of John Barrasso being a federal head, a representative head of all of us in this room. You might not have chose Barrasso to be your senator, but he's still your senator. And he's making decisions back in Washington, D.C. that impact every one of our lives. Why? Because he represents us. He stands in our shoes, and he's making decisions that impact all of us. So if Barrasso votes, hey, listen, we're going to war, guess what? We're going to war. He made the decision on our behalf. If he says the taxes are going up, guess what? The taxes are going up. Hopefully not. If he says the taxes are going down, we would say amen. But uh, he represents us and makes decisions on our behalf that are binding on us. So too, Adam. 
Adam was placed in the garden. God appointed him to be the federal head, the whole human race. And so that when the test came, when the opportunity came, uh, by the way, God gave him how many commandments? How many commandments did God give Adam? Did he string him out with a code book this thick? Oh, just one, yeah. Don't eat. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat. And you think about it, was God being a stingy God at that point? Was that like the only, well, the only two trees that had fruit on them? No. There was beauty and liberality in the garden. Uh, it doesn't say I'm kind of, you know, using my sanctified imagination, but I, I, mean, I get the impression there was a lot of good fruit in the garden. There were a lot of trees. And there, there must have been pear trees and uh, avocado trees and peach trees for those who are from Georgia, and apple trees, and nut trees, banana trees. I mean, just who, who knows all the different kinds of fruit that was his. But that one tree, Adam, you don't eat that one tree. The day you eat that one tree, there's, there's, by the way, a punishment attached. You will surely die. So it was, it was one law with a capital, it was a capital crime that to break the law. And if you eat of that tree, you're going to what? die. Now, we know this by reading Genesis. Adam just didn't suddenly drop dead when he, when he took bite, right? He, in fact, he lived, I believe, was it 930 years, something like that, before he finally died, just like God said he would. But he did die. And we're going to see in a minute there's three kinds of death. There, there's a physical death that we, we all experience and we've mourned over the loss of friends and loved ones. When we depart this physical body, there's a spiritual death that we all have as we enter this world. We're born with a fallen nature that's in us. That, 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 that's a spiritual death. But then there's also the eternal death that all those who pass from this life, uh, especially those without Christ, go off into eternity to only face the wrath of Almighty God. So remember that, that Adam was our representative head. Adam sinned. He's our head. So what happened to us? We're in Adam. We're in the garden. He's in front of us. What happened to us? We sinned. We sinned. And then he said, Adam died. And he's our head. What happened? We all die. Do you see that? That that comes from him being that representative head. In other words, his, his sin was imputed to us. His death was imputed to us. His guilt was imputed to us. And I believe that if Adam would have obeyed in the garden and he had never eaten the fruit and they continued to have children, uh, we would be living forever. There would be no death with any of us. So there we were, standing with him. We watched, spiritually speaking, as he took the fruit and whether Eve handed it to him and and then uh, she was whispering in his ear. I don't know all that went in his mind. He willfully took of the fruit and did what? Disobeyed God, and he did eat. And we all went, oh, Adam, what'd you do that for? You're my representative head. He broke the law of God. He breached the law of God. Imputed to us was, was the guilt that he experienced by breaking that law. Adam's a sinner. Therefore, you're a sinner. 
Adam died, therefore we all will die. And we're all guilty because of that. By the way, that explains why little babies die. You realize that? If you're looking for explanation of why a, a little baby coming into this world, uh, maybe weeks old, days old, and suddenly passes away, why, why would that happen? That child never did anything wrong. That child never sinned. Well, we, we can look at that more, but what we do know from this passage is this. That child had a representative head who was Adam. And Adam sinned, and so when that child came into the world, that child, that little baby, is guilty of sin. And therefore will die, whether at an early age or, 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 or a much later age in life, because of the imputed sin of Adam. So where does sin come from? From Adam's disobedience. His guilt imputed to us. And so we were born, we came to this, in this world with a record. Do you realize that? We, our, our slate wasn't clean. We, we came into this world guilty at birth because of Adam's sin. Now, there's also a, a second way that the sin entered the world through Adam. That is, the inherited, we inherit a corruption or a corrupt nature from Adam. Now, God promised Adam that the day or the, when he ate of that fruit, he would die, right? He didn't die physically. But I believe he died spiritually the moment he took that first bite and just began to maybe drip off his lips after because it, it was so juicy and maybe even tasted so good. But the bitterness was at that point in time, he immediately died spiritually. And something inside of him changed. And, and now all of a sudden his nature began to change. And, and no longer did he have a, an affection and a love for God. Now all of a sudden there's spiritual death in his life and, and an alienation from God and a separation from God. And his heart, that heart of flesh, suddenly became a heart of stone. And then his passions were to rebel. His passions were to, to turn away. And that in, inward corruption was there. The loss of a love for God. Not seeking after God anymore. Spiritual deadness of heart. The seeds of sin were already sowed into his very being. Calvin writes, Adam became corrupted, depraved, and ruined our nature. We therefore have all sinned because we have all imbued, we've all been imbued with sinful nature, imbued with sinful corruption. And so what happened was when he sinned and he fell spiritually and he, he had a, a sinful nature from that point on, that was passed on genetically to every one of Adam's descendants, right down to you and to me. And we were all born with that sinful, that sinful corruption. You know, our confession of 1689 sums this up, and I think it's good to turn back occasionally just to see how, how, how the, the authors of our, of our confession wrote this. They write, They, speaking of Adam and Eve, being the root by God's appointment, standing in the room and instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed. So we saw that already. That's the imputation of guilt. And corrupted nature was conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin, 
and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all the misery, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus Christ set them free. That's what happened to all of us. Adam fell spiritually. He was corrupted in his heart, and therefore we inherited his corrupt nature at birth. And that's why we would say, we were born what? Sinners, yeah. We were born sinners. More than by choice. I, I was born a sinner. Number one, I was guilty because the guilt was imputed to me. But also, there's a sense in which I was born a sinner because of my relationship to Adam. And every one of us in this room, child, children, older older people, all in between, we were born with the seeds of sin already sown in our hearts, in our souls. That new, newborn, that little baby that comes and, and you're coddling that brand new, beautiful little grandchild or, or your own child. I mean, you almost have to intellectually put on your hat and say, okay, I know what the Bible says. This child is born and conceived in sin. Right from Psalm 51.5, of the words of David. Inside this beautiful little child, we see the seeds of sin, a depraved heart. And, uh, and it doesn't take long for that little depraved heart to begin to, to express itself. As soon as it can speak, what, what, what does that little beautiful little child do? Huh? No. Yeah, no. Yeah, mom says yes. He said no. Yeah. So disobey. Verbally say No. Soon they start telling lies. I mean, what, chi- what age does a child begin to start telling lies to mommy and daddy? Usually very young. And let me ask you parents, how many of you sat down and catechized your children on the principles of lying? Say, by the way, let me give you some finer tips on how to be a good liar in this world. Let me tell you how you can just, you have a straight face and well, they can look right at you. Never know you're telling a lie. Did we have to teach our children to lie? No, we have to teach our children to what? Tell the truth. Why is there bent towards lying? Because of the endemic nature that's in, it's in their heart that they were born with, that we were all born with. And then, of course, the kids, you know, they love to, to sibling rivalry and begin to wrestle and fight each other and uh, come out of their bedrooms crying and uh, stealing and uh, stealing off dad's dresser. And by the way, there's 50 cents and, you know, this, this disappears. I mean, these things happen because of what? A sinful nature that's in a child's heart begins to manifest itself. So as parents, you shouldn't be surprised that your children are sinners. Your parenting process process is is a great one that God's given you as you seek to overcome the ravages of the fall in your children. And then it goes on. We know that a defiled heart, as a child gets older and becomes more, more of an adult... We begin to see the pride and the sins begin to multiply and get bigger and stronger. I, you know, I remember when I was raising our family, I, I longed for the days when my children were little and I could take out the paddle and, and just kind of do some correction when there was disobedience. But I'll tell you what, what's hard for you parents is when your kids get of an age where they're, they're now 18, 19 years old, they've left home, they're at college. And now all of a sudden, the decisions they're making, the sins they're making, in their own life are sins that are going to affect their whole being for the rest of their life. And you don't have that little paddle you can just paddle and say, 
don't do that. Now, now there's lifelong consequences that flow to them because of their own disobedience. So it corrupts our will. We're a slave to sin. We see that's part of the heart that we all have. You know, even affects our desire to come to Christ. You know, the, you need to know this. When, when the remedy is given to you, and we're going to see the remedy next week, the remedy is Jesus. The, the, the remedy is being vitally joined to Christ. And when He's brought to your heart to come to Christ, that defiled nature that we were born with says what? Absolutely not. I refuse to come to Christ. I'm not interested in spiritual things. You, you got a little Johnny. You say, well, Johnny, you came to church all, all your life, and now, now you're, a, you're a teenager. What, what happened? Well, now we're going to see the, the fruit of, a, of disobedience and the fruit of a depraved heart. I mean, some of you have, have, have been outside the kingdom for all your life. And being outside the kingdom, many opportunities have come to you, right to your doorstep of your heart, to simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And you've said no, and you've rejected. And, uh, and maybe it's to the point where you don't even feel spiritually anything, any affections for God at all. Where does that come from? That comes from a heart, a depraved heart that you were born with. And that heart is what needs to be changed if you're ever to become a child of God. Because that heart corrupts our will, it corrupts, it corrupts our, our passions for God, it makes us a slave to sin. And we're going to see next week, only Christ can break all of that through the gospel. And then we conclude by looking at this, he says, because all have sinned. You see that? Now, does your Bible have a dash after that? Some of the translations do. In other words, it says, because all sinned, dash. Well, you know, the dash isn't in the original. Uh, In fact, there are no uh, punctuation marks in the original Greek. And in fact, in the original Greek, everything's in capital letters. So they don't even have capital and lower case. So for the translators here, uh, in most translations, put a dash because they realize Paul never finished the sentence. He's going on to the next point. He says, because all sinned, and he, and he was going to go on, but he didn't. He must have thought what he had to say after that is maybe more important. He takes us back to the garden, because all sinned. By the way, if you're into grammar at all, sin is, is in the aorist, point in time action, never to happen again. The picture that he's, he's drawing there is of a particular point in time. All sin. So you see how that keeps us from realizing he's not talking about individual sins in people's lives throughout, you know, as long as we're on the earth. He's talking about a time when everybody sinned. And that's when we were joined together. He was our, he was our uh, representative head. And when he sinned, we all sinned at that point in time. So he stops in the middle, he has an afterthought, he has an aside that he wants to bring us, a parenthetical statement, and we come to verse 13 where we see how all this is verified in human history. For sin entered, excuse me, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Now when was the law given? When was the moral law of God given? And where was it given? It was given to Moses. He was up on a mountain called Sinai, 
And so we have the moral law of God given to man at that point in time on Mount Sinai. And what, what Paul is saying here is something really fascinating. He says, before there was a law, before there was Moses getting the law from the Father, sin was, but in, sin is not counted where there is no law. He's going to go on to say that. But, but sin indeed was in the world. Now, what, what is an elementary understanding of a definition of sin? Sin is a transgression of the law. So here's the question. Here's the dilemma. If there's no, no law, then there must not be any sin, right? Isn't that logical? So there's no law, there can't be any sin. So, but he says, sin is not counted where there's no law. And still yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. People still died. So you have no law, no moral law given by God from, from uh, Adam all the way to Moses. How many millions of people did that include? And we see that uh, yet there was still death. Now, we also saw you can't die unless you do what? Sin. You sin, then you die. So if there's no sin, how do you die? That, that's the issue here. That's the question. Sin is a breaking of the law of God. And by the way, you cannot, you cannot sin if you, don't, if you don't have a law to break, in the true sense of the word. Our, some of you might be old enough to remember when Montana had no speed limits. Do you remember that? Yeah. So my son, Stephen, he had to get to uh, Texas. Not Texas, but to Florida to get back to college. And we were somehow we were late getting out, going on the road, getting to the airport. We had an hour. We had one hour to get to the airport in Billings. That's from Powell. But there was no speed limit. So I said, don't worry, Mary. There's no problem here. We'll get there on time. And at least from, from Powell, it was always an hour and a half, right? And that wasn't to the airport. That's just to get into the city. But uh, so off we went. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, I and mean, we were off going to the airport, and we made it to Billings in less than an hour, and we topped over 100 miles an hour several times along the way. We can talk about the wisdom of that later, <laughs> but I will say this, I didn't break the law. There, there, there was no ticket. I, I, where there's no law, there's no sin. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. Now, if I was driving 100 miles an hour in Wyoming to get to, to, to Billings, and I'm to pull you over and give you a ticket. But what he's saying here is this, is yet still there was death. And we know you can't die unless you sin. But if there's no sin, how do you die? And how did that happen between, between Adam and Moses? And why is it everyone died? It's universal. Nevertheless, yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Well, he goes on to say, even over those sinning, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, even those who didn't sin the way Adam sinned, that is, breaking a commandment given to them by law, they still died. And how could that be? Now, we've already seen the answer. We've already given the answer. Do you remember what the answer is? Because it was what? Sin was imputed to all of mankind when Adam what? Sinned. So 
even though no one broke any particular commandments, they're still guilty sinners. And they still die because of the imputation of guilt that came from Adam's transgression. They didn't sin by breaking the law like Adam did. There were none. But their sin was imputed to them from Adam. And of course, they had a sinful heart. They were depraved by birth, a sinful nature. You know, the main point of this, this short passage is to remind us that, that uh, what's, what Adam did affects us all. And it's not like he's going to reign and he's going to sit here and camp out with Adam, and this is his main point. Keep in mind his main point is next week, because there's one greater than Adam that came. And unless you understand imputation, what happened to Adam, you won't fully understand the gospel and justification by faith and the righteousness that comes to us by one person, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's setting up a, a contrast here. The whole human race was caught up in Adam's sin. Adam's guilt, we're guilty, Adam died, we die. So where did it come from? Well, evil came from the imputed sin and guilt of Adam to all of us. And it also came because it was inherited, the nature was inherited to us through birth from Adam. We stand guilty for that sin. We're going to die because of that sin. And that's why we all die. And therefore, death spreads to where? All men. And I just want to quickly mention, I already did a little bit, but there are three kinds of death. So we have to make sure we we keep those in mind if we're going to properly understand the New Testament. But there is death in the physical sense, right? Uh, when, When this, we breathe our last breath, we expire, we breathe that last breath, we, where we leave this body of flesh, there's physical death. We're all going to die. We just saw that there's spiritual death, and that is that that's that fallen, corrupt nature that's in, in any one of us, that uh, we're spiritually dead, we, we say. Uh, inside, you're about as spiritually alive without Christ as this podium here. You're dead in your trespasses and sin, Ephesians tells us. And then there's going to come a day when we enter into eternal death as we leave this life. So let's see if we can uh, summarize this, put this together in, in, by way of application. Uh, two, two sources of evil, two sources of sin, that which is imputed and that which is inherited. And the two big questions, where did sin come from? You can say, Adam did it. <laughs> Shift the blame to him. No, you can't shift the blame to Adam, can you? I mean, some people want to do that. They say, well, you know, this. I hear what you're saying, Don. I even see the words here in, in Scripture. But I'll tell you what, I, this must not be right. This doesn't seem fair. I mean, how could one man determine what's going to happen to me for eternity? How could one man, how, how could I be guilty of his sin? And how can I die because of his death? Who chose him to be my federal head? I never voted for him. He's in a different party than I belong to. Well, let me say this. It's true. None of us had a say, did we, in Adam being our head. But God chose him to be our head. And he was the perfect head 
for him to choose. He was the perfect man for him to choose. There isn't one of us in this room that would have done any better than Adam did when tempted with the fruit off the, off the tree. Every one of us would have eaten. And so therefore, uh, we stand in solidarity with his guilt before God. And then notice that Paul closes with a little hint of what's coming next week. A little trailer here that he's going to give us to look at. Uh, what's coming in verses 15 to 21. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Do you see that? Adam doesn't appear. I just kind of put that in parentheses. That's who he's talking about. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Type is a word that you see sometimes in the New Testament to discuss uh, shadows of the Old Testament, fulfillment in the New Testament. Pictures that God gave us in the Old Testament to teach us about New Testament truths and gospel truths. Sometimes they're a person, like Adam. Sometimes they're an institution. Uh, Sometimes they're an event. Sometimes they're a building. But they're types. And some people get way wonky with these types, and they they find types of everything everywhere. If you read any, I read Pink earlier, but he he loves to find types in bushes and everything that he reads, you know, and so you got to be careful. Perhaps the safest way is to think if God wants us to find a type in the Old Testament, he'll tell us. If he wants us to see that typology, he will tell us. And that's what he does here in verse uh, 14. Adam, who was a what? A type of the one who was to come. One's going to come after him. It's going to be a greater, a fulfillment, a, a reality, even greater than Adam. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me give you a quote. We've got to have at least one Spurgeon quote here. So let me give you a Spurgeon quote for the day. Uh, Here we find Spurgeon lamenting. Oh, the awful power which sin had thus to turn the whole world into one vast cemetery and to slay the whole human race. Just meditate on that. Oh, the awful power which sin had to turn the whole world into one big cemetery and to slay the whole human race. That is the sinfulness of sin. And do you see why it's so important for us to understand the origin of sin, the sinfulness of sin? Because unless you understand the sinfulness of sin, the corruption that's in your heart, and how deceitful your heart and wicked really is, and, and, and unless you feel and smell the pollution that comes from your own heart, you will never flee to the right remedy for that sin. I mean, that's why we have an easy believism gospel today, is because we have a, a weak understanding of what sin is and not seeing the sinfulness of sin. I mean, if if your problem is like a little cup and it's a little dirty on the inside, but you're going to polish it up on the outside, and it's no big deal, I made a mistake, I made some mistakes in my life, what kind of a gospel does it take to save that person? I mean, really, it takes no gospel at all. A little religiosity is all it takes. But when you see that the sin problem that you have is your guilt is based on what happened back in the garden. And you are guilty. 
And you are a sinner. And not only that, you've, you've inherited that corrupt nature in your heart. And you're spiritually dead. And you can't think your way out of it. You can't work your way out of it. You can't emotionally love your way out of it. You're dead. And you're doomed. And not only that, that's just what Adam did. Then you compound that with all the individual sins that every one of us have done in our life. Our own record, our own rap sheet that we have. And the Spirit of God is great for bringing it out and rolling it out for us to see and convict us of every single one of the sins where we disobeyed the law of God. You see, no religion can take you in that, from that condition and in and of itself make you a righteous person. Nothing else than the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that He's going to impute to all those who will come to Him through faith. Your problem is in your mistakes. Your problem is, uh, is that you're bad to the bones, as they would say. You have inherited corruption. And I don't know how long your rap sheet is, but I know mine's pretty long. The longer you live, the longer it gets. Every time you disobey the law of God. And you got a heart that has no affection for God and doesn't want to repent and a heart that refuses to trust in Christ or even believe or understand what He's done. And you have a, a mind that's been corrupted to the point where you can't even think straight anyway, so you make all bad decisions in your life. How in the world are you ever going to get out of that? How will you ever be freed from that? And it's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come back next week. You'll hear how that can happen through the work of Christ on the cross and His imputed righteousness and the power of the Holy Spirit to take that heart of stone out and give you a heart of flesh. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And uh, Lord, as I ponder this last week, that uh, this passage just begins to scratch the surface. As deep as it goes, it scratches the surface of the depth of our own sin. God, I pray for each of us that you would help us see from the youngest to the oldest the sinfulness of our sin, the pollution of our sin, the power of our sin, the deadening impact of our sin, and not only for this life, but for eternity. Oh, Lord, I pray that none would want to be under the wrath of you forever. So, Lord, open our hearts and fold us before you. Convict us of our sins. Enliven us, Lord, where we're dead. And I pray if there's one here without Christ, just one here today, Lord, without Christ, would you be kind and open that heart and fold them before you would you lovingly call and draw that person to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved? For your glory's sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.